Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Airmic Talks, your fortnightly podcast from the UK's Risk and Insurance Management Association. This is the second of three episodes taking a deep dive into the key themes that have emerged from Airmic's annual survey, Top Risks and Megatrends 2020. A link to that full report is in the episode description. Last time out, we heard from Airmix Julia Graham on the key takeaways, COVID-19 and the insurance market, and also Lucy Stambra at Willis Towers Watson on the geopolitical challenges facing organisations today. In the second half of this episode, I'll be speaking to James Owen, a partner at Control Risks and head of their cybersecurity practice in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. That is definitely a must listen as we talk about the cyber risk landscape and emerging threats in the present environment. But first, I'm delighted to be joined by Cecil Fresno, Executive Director of the UK Insurance Division at QBE Insurance. Cecil and QBE were instrumental in the Ermic Survey chapter on resilience in an unpredictable year, and we cite the QBE Unpredictability Index in the report. Cecil began our conversation by explaining what they believe is behind our world's growing unpredictability. Thanks, Richard. Well, I I think when we published the report, certainly what stood out um, was that the survey participants were pointing to the political environment, um, primarily um, driving that level of unpredictability. And it may well have been their response to the context in which they were operating at the time, as in uh, Brexit, not clear on where would we where we would be at with that and what a transition deal um, would look like. Um, also, looking at um, heads of state across the world, you know, Trump being a case in point, and seeing that there were um, some unusual, I guess, different types of people as heads of state making very complex and difficult decisions with all the impacts that has on the way businesses operate globally. Uh, creating instability in in supply chains and and trade agreements and tax regimes, obviously impacting businesses. But I think when we dig a bit deeper, um, for me, what stands out is what's actually at play is a range of fairly complex factors that are all interconnected and they're all at play at the same time. And I think that's what makes um, the environment particularly complex not so much to predict, but to try and get a handle on where things um, might go in future. Um, So I've pointed out to political instability, but it's not just that, it's the wider geopolitical uncertainty in the world and growing tensions between the East and the West. Um, I think it's the fact also that maybe some accepted um, ways of viewing capital markets or um, the role of politics over the last 50, 60 years is changing where capital markets are not um, no longer being seen necessarily as the backbone of our society, where you can see social unrest um, in response to inequity in wealth distribution or um, the way traditionally minorities have been treated and people no longer wanting to um, accept that. There's also the responses to climate change and climate concerns. And that's what I mean by all these factors in terms of, you know, social responses to climate change, to inequity in wealth and wealth distribution, um, to what politicians are saying, to which politicians get uh, voted in, to then their politics in a country and sort of the uh, standards they set. I think all those factors come together. They're quite complex and they're all they're all connected. 
And I think that's where that impression of growing unpredictability um, really comes from. Um, maybe we had, you know, over the last 40, 50 years, um, the illusion of a bit more control. Um, and I think because of the extent to which things have changed as a result of, you know, maybe primarily human actions and the scale of them and the pace of the change and modernization we've been able to implement, that it's not a world that's slightly gone out of control for us, but certainly our understanding of it um, and the factors shaping it is certainly being challenged. And that's what we probably experience as humans as being unpredictable as a result. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that's a really nice uh, introduction and kind of context for the next next couple of questions. So still, what challenges then does uh, this kind of this unpredictability create when we're trying to build resilience in our organizations? Yeah, so if I go back, you know, if resilience is the definition of the word is that ability to recover quickly from difficulties or to be able to absorb or avoid shocks and damage without, you know, suffering complete failure, then in a world that's uncertain, certainly uh, it makes it really difficult for businesses to be able to set a strategy and stick to it, um, to undertake strategic planning and have a level of confidence around therefore the resources um, that are being put in those initiatives and the fact that they and the belief, you know, um, feel that they'll be able to deliver. Um, and obviously I think in a world um, that's more unpredictable, to be able to plan to recover quickly from um, challenges, I think it means creating options and creating options is difficult. It's also expensive and it's fairly complex mm. to manage. Um, I think it also means having measures in place, maybe different measures to assess how the world is changing and probably more leading indicators um, that allow businesses to change tack fairly quickly. But um, I think it's incredibly challenging. Um, the answers are difficult. It's not obvious, but it means any traditional means of running a business, starting with you know strategy, strategic planning, um, is not as straightforward. So how can organizations then improve their resilience in the face of this unpredictability, bearing in mind some of those challenges that you just set out? I think in terms more of process and business approach, I think there's a lot around um, scenario analysis and mapping out different scenarios of um, how a business's environment might change and being able to identify the key elements that create the most uh, sensitivity. Um, and then I think being able to review one's business um, to understand the vulnerabilities and the strengths in the face of those various scenarios really helps inform um, areas that need to change or um, make preparations um, for areas that might need to change or responses that a business might want to deploy should any of those scenarios um, um, eventuate. Um, but that's that's process, and I think you know process is in the hands of people. So for me, having the right mix of people um, in leadership positions, um, but across the board, which means again, you know, the agenda of diversity and inclusion, I think, comes to the fore, because obviously we can't rely on teams who've got an experience of the past and uh, don't have a lot of diversity of thought. Um, have confidence that they know how to run through things. There's an ability for leadership teams to be agile, to challenge themselves, to ask questions to problems they maybe have never had to solve, um, to find new solutions. 
um, which I think is helped when there are um, different voices around the table um, who are heard uh, and really have an ability to shape what the solutions might be. Um, and I think for me, in terms of, again, leadership uh, traits, it's a form of humility, um, primarily to learn, um, to ask questions, openness to think through issues that maybe no one has had to think through before, and therefore there's no solution that one can draw on that's been um, tested um, and has proven its value. Um, so I think in the current environment, it's really about having that ability uh, to come up with new ideas and solutions. Um, so that's about people, but at the core of a business, I think needs to be a clear sense of purpose. And I think if a business is able to go back to its sense of purpose, the reason why it exists, um, and if it's led and driven by people who have the qualities beforehand, then I think the process of working through scenario analysis, having um, a review of organizations and businesses, you know, leads to a much better quality of outcome in terms of depth and richness of thought, and therefore of um, potential options and solutions as well. So obviously, uh, the pandemic and, and the past six or seven months have been a huge challenge to resilience and would have highlighted you know, blind spots in organizations' resilience. What lessons do you think the pandemic and its wide-ranging impacts have had, have had for us? Well, I think so far there's a few I can think of. Um, and sometimes it's better to have a bit more distance relative to an event to fully appreciate what we can all learn. Yeah. But the ones that stand out for me, particularly, you know, at the beginning of the crisis, um, is that question of adaptability and an ability to improvise and make um, decisions without all the right information um, initially to set things up, I think um, is really important. And there's a difference, I think, between businesses or teams who kind of look into a crisis and ask themselves lots of questions, but don't make decisions and don't move forward versus those that grab hold of it and have the ability to improvise along the way. Um, I think some of the things that really stand out for me uh, over the last four months is the importance of human connection and the strengths of um, brought by teamwork. Because if I think of either clients or ourselves of people who've, um, who are getting on through these incredibly difficult times, is because um, they've got strong teams who work well together where they can reach out to people, partners, um, and, and discuss the best way to approach things, help each other, have a level of empathy to understand what different parties in a situation um, might be going through and what the impacts might be for them. Um, so it's just for me, it's been such a reminder that life and business also are about people and relationships. And yes, a lot of businesses have been helped by having um, the right technology in place to help them work remotely. Uh, don't get me wrong, that's really important. Um, but I think what all of this brings home is really for me that um, a lot of what we do is about people and relationships and everything else around it can only work if those two things are in place, frankly. Well, thank you to Cecile and QBE. And to read more about the QBE Unpredictability Index and the survey report, please find a link in the episode description. But moving on to cyber now, and I'm very happy to say we have James Owen, partner at Control Risks and head of their cybersecurity practice in Europe, the Middle East and Africa, joining us. 
So, James, the top two risks in the megatrends survey are, are both cyber-related. Business interruption and data compromise are the, are the top two highlighted. Presumably, these these two risks being so high up at the top is, is no particular surprise to you. No, not, not, not really, Richard. Both, I guess, represent two of the biggest challenges for companies. Uh, the impact of business interruption to a company's reputation, to its operations, to its frankly, ultimate financial viability has only really risen in prominence as a result of some of the large-scale ransomware and distributed denial of service or DDoS attacks that we've seen in recent years. So attackers are still exploiting basic insecurity across personal and corporate networks, which in today's COVID world are essentially one and the same thing. Um, And these include things like out-of-date software, weak passwords, unintentional downloading of viruses when visiting compromised web pages and clicking on phishing and spam. But we're also seeing more sophisticated attacks, particularly from extortion groups who combine traditional ransomware extortion, where the malware is designed to intimidate or force victims to pay a ransom, typically by encrypting files, with data leak operations that then publish the stolen data with the purpose of increasing the attacker's chance of profiting from the campaign. Um, We've seen the cost of data breaches increase. They're now on average globally around $3.6 million per breach. And the regulatory cost has also increased significantly with law enforcement agencies now flexing their muscles much more than, than, than they did previously. So I guess what that does is really point to the need for companies to take their cybersecurity seriously, to make sure that they have up to date backups of their data and well rehearsed response and recovery plans in place. Because after all, right now, it's more the board rather than previously the IT team that essentially gets the blame if production grinds to a halt in a business interruption, for example. Yeah, really interesting that that responsibility is kind of getting passed up the chain as a result of our regulations and, and law enforcement. Obviously, the pandemic has, you know, has come along the last eight, nine months now, and has obviously forced organizations to move to a much more remote working. I'm interested to know how has that changed or to what extent it obviously has changed. To what extent has this kind of culture shift of working from home changed the cyber risk landscape? And as a result, are organizations more likely to be a victim of, a, of an attack as a result? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's probably more accelerated rather than change everything overnight. Um, what we've definitely seen is that the pandemic has accelerated the move of business to using the cloud, social networking, and mobile computing-based technology much more um, rapidly than, than otherwise would have been the case. It's essentially fast that fast-track that process of digital transformation that has been observable for some time. It's, it's kind of really the realization of the challenges once associated with the policy of bring your own device or BYOD to work on a huge global scale. Um, and it's put technology even more at the center of everything we do. Um, and as a result, increase the stresses and strains on how we actually secure that technology, which is stretching in turn traditional corporate approaches to what is and is not now secure within an organization. So our, our kind of virtually enabled home working arrangements, indeed, even the way that we're talking right now, has 
made us more fun, more vulnerable to cyber attacks. Criminals over the last six months have certainly looked to weaponize the fear of the pandemic to commit more financial fraud and extort ransoms. And we've also seen state actors exploit the uncertainty for their own purposes, mainly related to disruption, espionage and surveillance. The tactics actually, I would say from an attack point of view, haven't actually been anything particularly new. It's been more the scale and volume that has been unprecedented. So what then, has there been anything new at all? If, if, if the tactics haven't changed greatly, have there been any you know signs of, of new types of attacks coming out? Yeah, exactly. So we've seen lots of kind of social engineering based phishing, targeting of video conferencing platforms, malicious mobile apps and websites, DDoS ransomware, but none of this is hugely new. I guess what the pandemic has done has been to accelerate the expansion of that kind of attack surface globally, um, the more so now than ever before, with more aggregated or systemic risk now existing, um, thanks in part to our dependence on a small number of very large global technology providers. But we're also seeing attackers focus more attention on, for example, the technology behind manufacturing production lines, oil refineries, drilling rigs. So the operational technology, much of which has not been secured in the last decade in the same way that traditional IT has. We're seeing the use of artificial intelligence, not just as a way for corporates to improve their own security, but as a way for criminals to carry out faster, more efficient, and harder to detect attacks. And we're seeing increasing targeting of cloud service providers and software supply chains, which really does raise the specter again of those kind of cascading attacks that flow through the systems of global companies at really unprecedented speed in a similar way to the attacks that we saw in 2017 with WannaCry and not Petra, if you remember. And I guess the point here is that the risk of being caught up in this contagion is greater now than before because we're more interconnected than ever before. And the fact is also, as was was um, alluded to in the AMIC survey, that actually cyber attacks have become a less covert and more conventional tool for states to project military force in the last few years. The potential for collateral damage, in other words, in this scenario, is greater for corporates around the world than, than it was previously, and certainly looking back five, 10 years. So bearing, bearing all of that in mind, uh, and it certainly sounds pretty intimidating atmosphere, you know, environment for organizations in the cyber landscape, but obviously there are ways to combat this and, and secure organizations' network to a degree. What, what are organizations doing to respond to this kind of emerging cyber risk landscape, or what should they be doing to respond to this? Yeah, well, I guess in many cases, actually still not enough. Um, there's still a lack of understanding around cyber risk in many boards and executives teams. It's improving, but in part, this is because there is still a dearth of concrete data to, to actually quantify cyber risk itself, meaning it's often hard for companies to make decisions, particularly when it comes to security and technology spend. But there are things that, of course, they can be doing, and, and particularly within the light of some of the points I've already mentioned. Um, and to cite three, um, firstly, the fact that companies right now should be looking to fine-tune their risk management strategies more than before um, to reflect the realities of the external environment. So to navigate what today is a much more extreme, much more fluid global 
political trade and regulatory environment um, that in many cases actually ca- is catching these companies in the crossfire. So, you know, just ask Huawei about that, Kaspersky, Cisco. Um, so there is no doubt today that companies are much more um, having to weigh massive political and national security considerations when engaging with a new supply chain partner about whom their host government has a negative view, for example. Secondly, um, the need for companies to treat cybersecurity is just another aspect of what should be continuous business risk management that is ever present and requires the same level of rigor and discipline from senior management. And that means taking a holistic approach to cyber based on joined up risk scenarios rather than looking at it as a single point in time assessment, um, making sure that your cyber analysis is data driven to ensure continuous performance measurement and improvement, and ultimately to make sure that you're developing a cyber approach that prioritizes people and specifically skills development and culture as a way to best embed resilience and of course also drive innovation rather than simply relying on technology adoption as a kind of catch-all panacea. And then thirdly, the importance of bringing together cyber and physical disciplines. And this, I guess, reflects the blended nature of the threat and and that reality today. Um, And the fact that actually the disciplines can learn from each other. Um, Cyber can learn, for example, from the more human aspects of physical security. um, And both can increasingly work together in more combined, integrated ways. Um, And we see this, for example, in the way that they are much more joined up today and particularly large global financial institutions um, in security and intelligence monitoring centers. So there are things that companies can do. um, And those are some of the more kind of sophisticated parts of of, of that. Um, But often, actually, it's also just about getting the basics right, as I mentioned at the beginning. Yeah, really interesting. I think that's really great insight as well for our, for our members members to have if they're not already thinking about that as part of their day jobs. One of the one of the more recent high profile attacks that we saw was um, seen to take place on on the Twitter platform earlier in July. Um, as as far as I understand it, a number of verified accounts were kind of hacked to post Bitcoin links. Um, and and as a result, I think a number of those verified accounts had to be kind of suspended for, for a short period of time while Twitter got a handle on it. Have you seen, have we seen anything like that before? And, and what are the implications for that type of event? Because it's not directly getting into major organizations' networks from the, from the outsides for, for, for what it looks like. But what kind of impact does that type of event have? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question. The hijacking of social media accounts is definitely nothing new. It's actually quite common. I guess it doesn't usually involve the simultaneous compromising of accounts belonging to the people like Bill Gates, Barack Obama, Jeff Bezos, and Joe Biden. Mm. Um, So the coordination involved in what was a pretty sophisticated social engineering attack on Twitter employees with access to internal systems was was impressive. Um, And it actually could have been a lot worse given the alleged cyber criminal perpetrators behind this. Um, had or may still have access to at least 350 million people via Twitter's internal system. Um, but I think what the and I, I think what was kind of being suggested in your question is what this points to is um, the fact that it doesn't just kind of raise security and data privacy concerns, but it also taps into a more existentially significant topic in today's world, and that is the role that social media plays as essentially 
the public sphere today um, and the way in which that public sphere is deeply vulnerable to manipulation in a way that can actually have profound implications for, for everything from elections to stock markets to diplomacy and, and national security. Um, so companies are used to formulating instant response plans, but these kinds of events, and this is by no means going to be the last one, should be a clear wake-up call for them to also plan for how to communicate, for example, a counter-narrative in response to misinformation and disinformation campaigns, both are really hugely rampant online and serve to motivate, radicalize, accelerate threats, whilst also creating significant noise for intelligence and security teams. And and likewise, companies shouldn't exclude preparing for perhaps the even more dystopian, but not too far away future reality of deep fakes, which are digitally manipulated videos that typically use machine learning to alter audio or imagery or even create completely original content. There is already significant interest in deep fakes amongst cyber criminals, as well as leveraging voice biometrics to carry out fraud. But both, I guess for now at least, are still only a developing capability enjoyed by threat actors with with the biggest budgets. So actually, I think the implications for this kind of attack are, are more serious than, than the kind of the actual security breach itself, though that also does raise questions. And I'm sure Twitter will be doing its best to um, advise its kind of global community on how it will be dealing with that going forward in the in the coming coming days and weeks. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You, you mentioned uh, deep fakes there, James, because I've, I've seen, I think it was MIT uh, who put out kind of a, a user, user deep fake as an example to show just how accurate and convincing they can be to, to warn people. I recommend people looking that up. I can't remember exactly the person that was involved in that video. And, um, and also I, I, your point about uh, the, the wider implications of if that's possible to to kind of hijack uh, social media accounts is interesting because of course the Bitcoin link you know once people realised what it was it was quite obvious that someone had been hacked but if they're able to covertly access accounts and obviously you could they could do much more subtle you know posts or you know posts from Facebook or Twitter or whatever accounts you know imitating a politician which could have much wider impacts on on elections as you say. Absolutely. I mean, that is, you know, the, the role that social media and, and Twitter in particular plays in 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 our as an information source, as a critical information source in, in today's world really is what makes this this hack actually, whilst in itself, in terms of the tactics, not unique, um, actually really quite significant. So just lastly, then, James, and this is something we probably could have talked for another 15 minutes on, but there's obviously <laughs> an ongoing contrast now between more and more seamless connectivity, you know, types of the Internet of Things, IoT devices, contrasting with uh, fragmented, more fragmented regulations and national sovereignty issues when it comes to the online world. So how do you see this these kind of contrasting pressures um, what what do you see that resulting in, and what does that mean for shaping the internet the internet in the future? Yeah, I mean, I guess this is another one of the big questions of of the day. So no pressure on answering this in a, in a couple of minutes. But um, it's, I mean, there is an inherent paradox and tension in this, um, and we're undoubtedly seeing more fragmentation in the regulatory landscape. Uh, the the move towards data privacy in recent years has absolutely reflected a shift in the power balance from 
bulk data collection and surveillance to data privacy and consumer rights in certain jurisdictions. GDPR is the best example of this in Europe, and that's influenced similar legislation in other parts of the world, in India, Brazil, and most recently California. But this trend isn't universal. And we do see, for example, in the form of the Chinese cybersecurity law, a different kind of focus and one more on, for example, data localization and controls on cross-border data transfers. And, and mirroring this is, to answer a bit more directly your question, a wider battle, I guess, around whether the internet should remain an open global platform or where, or where it should be one where a more state-centric vision prevails, where sovereign power over digital communications is asserted, um, with countries like Russia, China, and actually many African nations increasingly erecting digital boundaries. And this really does pose some pretty fundamental questions as to the future of globally standardized electronic communications, which in a worst case scenario could have a profound impact on the way we all live and work, particularly given how we've all been applauding ourselves for, for how seamlessly we've been working over the last six months from home. And into this mix, we obviously have right now um, much more proactivity on the part of countries um, in the steps they're taking to curtail the use of technologies that are owned, controlled, or subject to the laws of foreign adversaries. So we've seen this with the US and, uh, and other bans on Huawei, and likewise in China's drive to become technologically autonomous, so less dependent on a US tech supply chain. Um, so the irony is that just as we see regulatory fragmentation and more internet controls, um, the capability of attackers has actually never been so globally homogeneous. Um, but it's important just to finish, um, to put this in context, um, it's not all doom and gloom. Um, the, the proliferation of Internet of Things, IoT devices, is such that they are predicted to overtake non-IoT connections in 2022. The computerization of everything from cars to medical devices, homes, factories, cities, is not going anywhere. And that is actually a reality that COVID-19 has reinforced with the normalization of our virtual home working setup. So there is a there is a paradox, there is a tension there, and 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 much of that is linked to kind of global political trends. Um, but the actual technology that we're seeing globally being rolled out um, is is still taking things in a positive direction and, and and that is one where we are more connected than 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 disconnected from one another brilliant really interesting uh theme to end on james and and thank you very much for coming on to air talks oh, it's a pleasure thank you